You've come to the right place. If you're a course creator looking to build more impact, income, and freedom, LMS Cast is the number one podcast for course creators just like you. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of the most powerful tool for building, selling, and protecting engaging online courses called Lifter LMS. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. I'm joined by a special guest, Becca Rice. She's head of product at Skyverge and Jilt. Skyverge is a um, place with a lot of WooCommerce add-ons, uh, plugins and such. How many? Uh, over 50. That, which is awesome. And then Jilt is a software solution. It's email marketing built for e-commerce stores. And with all of you WooCommerce users out there that are using WooCommerce for your online course or your training-based membership site, I wanted to get Becca on the show so we could look at all these amazing tools that she and the team have built over there. But first, welcome to the show, Becca. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Um, I was really happy that we got a, a chance to sync up. We haven't seen each other in a few months now, so it's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I was a dog musher in Alaska before I got into software. You were a chemist. You have a background in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting. A lot of people that end up in software or WordPress in general, um, it's often a windy path. What connected your chemistry background to software development? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And for me, um, there's a couple of things. One was that uh, I started using that degree to teach high school chemistry. Um, and so actually it was kind of through teaching that really got me into software. Um, I was teaching high school and using WordPress for my classroom website and our softball team website. And um, since I was kind of uh, really involved in using WordPress and, and using plugins and kind of setting up some, some different stuff with this site, I was really sort of aware of, of what that process felt like to someone who wasn't a developer and who wasn't really into kind of like understanding how you would go about like sort of maintaining a site in, in a way that was forward thinking. And so because of that, uh, I started writing documentation about using uh, WooCommerce plugins from kind of this user perspective um, and then got interested in development. And I remember actually pretty acutely that for me, it was wanting to put tables on my website right? As a teacher and being yeah. like, why can't I do this in WordPress? Like it's, it's like Microsoft word for your website. Like I should be able to put a table in here and then learning HTML as a result from that and kind of snowballing from there. Um, so I got into it from documentation then as a result um, and kind of having that user perspective and then sort of getting way deeper into the e-commerce ecosystem and understanding those problems. Um, but coming from a chemistry background, I was sort of specializing in analytical chemistry um, And so I love like, you know, data analysis and I love sort of being able to dig into like breaking down why something's happening and how it's happening and and let's kind of evaluate that. And so I think when you're in the sort of product management space, that's a skill I lean on um, a fair bit, right? Which I think is is something that helps you out a lot if you kind of take that macro view of a big data set and say like, how can we slice this? Is it significant? What are we getting out of it? So a lot of that led me into the software space since those were pretty, you know, pretty translatable skills. That is awesome. And I I'm, I'm, have a lot of respect for that. I'm the opposite. I'm more of an intuitive feeler kind of guy. So it's, uh, I love seeing, um, or I'm trying to level up on the data analytical uh, side because it's, it's definitely key. Like with that in mind, um, how did you identify, like with the data mine and you look at mm-hmm. the needs of the WooCommerce store owner or would-be store owner, how did you identify which plugins to develop or acquire or whatever you did 
Like, how do you identify the pain points and the opportunities? Was it always scratching your own itch or did you have another process for that? Yeah. So one of the things coming from a science background is that I love research, right? And so that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, And so the way we approached that really early on was was from a couple perspectives. One was that we were doing client work uh, still for, you know, small businesses where, there weren't a ton of off-the-shelf uh, products for WooCommerce at that point. So people still had a lot of needs that weren't being served by the core platform or existing add-ons. So um, some of the products we had came from client work and people saying, I'm, I want to pay for this solution to exist. And so thinking, well, if this person's going to pay for it, you know, assuming that we can find some other people who are interested in it, you know, we, we're going to be able to sell this too, right? So that was kind of one thing. But then the other thing was looking a lot at what sort of existed in the market. Like let's say if there's competitors that maybe aren't, aren't hitting all of the problems that they should be quite as clearly as they could be um, and kind of do some research around what those competitors are offering, what we think they could be offering and doing a lot of user interviews. And so one what of the What does that early- look like? What does a user interview like look like for you? It's not just like installing a, um, I don't know, like sometimes I think about hot jar and crazy egg and these things yeah. like where we're just kind of watching how they use a website, but then there's actual like, looking over somebody's shoulder or there's talking to them, what'd you do? Yeah. So um, we do some of that looking over shoulder situation now with a tool called look back. That's really cool for that. So folks can, you know, record their screen while they're talking to you uh, and completing tasks, which is really, really helpful. But um, we didn't have that or even if it existed at that point, we definitely couldn't afford to pay for it. (laughs) So uh, a lot of it was talking to people and just saying, you know, Hey, I saw you were using this plugin or you left a comment on our, on our website, um, you know, when you were describing this problem, can we talk about it? And um, a lot of a user interview is really just asking why enough times until you feel like you get to the core problem someone has. Because a lot of the time what you'll find is that people will come in and ask you questions that are already coming from a place that they have a preconceived notion of how they'd solve a problem, right? Yeah. And so a good example of that is, you know, we have um, a plugin in WooCommerce that lets you export CSV files with borders, right? Okay. And that's really valuable in itself, and which is why we have a plugin, right? But we also found that there's a distinct number of people who were saying, I want to export this in this format, or I need to be able to change it this way. And what we found by asking why enough times was not that they, they specifically needed a particular format, but it was because they were using a particular fulfillment service that required that format. And so we then later just built a direct integration with that fulfillment service. And so a lot of it was, you know, finding everyone we could who was using WooCommerce or, or using, you know, plugins that we were familiar with and just trying to talk to them about their problems. That's awesome. And then you, first you identify it and then you shorten the steps or the friction between problem and solution. I mean, it's, it sounds easy, but I know, I know it's not, <laughs> I know it's yeah. not. And I think a lot of companies, they don't even, they don't do it. Like they don't take the time, especially in the beginning to do the user research and to get out of their own mind and what they think or what they learned. And, and you do, I mean, it's, I call that it moving slow to move fast. You got to move slow first to build the right thing so you can move fast later. Yep, absolutely. And it's, you know, going back to your earlier point about like intuition versus data, right? You really need both. You know, you yeah. can't say like, oh, I've done this marketplace analysis and I've seen, you know, this many votes and this many support conversations and this many forum posts, right? Because you're still going to have the assumption that you understand the problem in the first place. So really it comes back to that, you know, knowing, knowing the, the people you're building for and the, and the problems they're trying to solve and, and really understanding to get to the level, which I think is to your point, why it seems easy, but it's not is a lot of the time people stop short of like, well, yeah, I understand the problem. It's that we need this format for this, you know, export file. And it's like, well, no, there's, a, there's always, there's almost always a problem behind that problem. So I like, get to the next problem. Yeah. And that's something that you, the course creator, the membership creator can learn from is, you know, your market doesn't always tell you exactly what they need. There's something else behind that. And that's really what the entrepreneur does 
and you know speaking to education entrepreneurs is you're using training to find the problem behind the problem and then help them solve it and reduce the steps so you can learn a lot for um, creating online training by watching how software companies do that which is why i wanted to get into that that kind of line of questions for you switching over to you know using technology to support people building memberships you have a product called woocommerce memberships that's what it's called right yeah absolutely and um i like to like there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace and i help like one of the things mm -hmm. i spend a ton of time doing when i talk to people is we have to get a definition of terms some people see memberships as like oh it's a membership site and there's stuff behind it some people see it as a subscription payment model some mm -hmm. people see it as like a benefit like that you get access to free things or cheaper things. There's all kinds of different ways to use memberships. For this community here, they're mostly thinking about building a membership site, which has like things like courses, digital downloads, um, access to like pre-recorded webinars, maybe some templates and a bunch of stuff. How do you how do people use WooCommerce memberships? Like what like if you were to dissect with your analytical mind, <laughs> even if it's outside of courses, like how do people and training, like what is how do people use your plugin? Yeah. And so I think this is an area where uh, we have a lot of overlap between what we do, right? Yeah. And why I think you know Lifter LMS is, is awesome as a result because it dovetails so nicely with what we see out of out of memberships. And, and just as an area, I think is really cool coming from, you know, an education background, right? So with memberships, we, we usually kind of explain the differentiation between these things as if you want a recurring billing model, that's a subscription, right? Okay. If you want to protect content from different kinds of, of users or visitors, that's a membership. If you want to um, give people an ability to learn from you, that's a course, right? And you may need one of those or you may need all three of them. Right. And so we find that um, we do have a lot of membership sites that are also using an LMS plugin because they will do exactly what you said, which is they might have a course for folks or webinars that should be protected. So only specific people could see them. Right. Well, now we've put two of those concepts together. You have a course that you're giving people and that course should be protected. So what you need is learning management and a membership component. And, you know, a lot of a lot of plugins will sometimes cover both. Right. When we built WooCommerce memberships, we were really focused on just the protection piece of it because we felt like that was a really big problem to solve. And then we, you know, we work really closely with other plugins to try to make it flexible enough that you can use it with a subscription plugin or an LMS plugin. That's cool. Well, let's talk, let's talk about teams for memberships because um, as of this recording, we've at Lifter LMS, we've probably rolled out our groups add on and for WooCommerce users um, who are selling to teams or companies or schools or to parents or whatever that, that group is, how does teams, how does your teams plugin work with WooCommerce? Yeah. And so the LMS community was actually one of our biggest like customers in mind when we, when we built that. So, um, what we found was that we have a lot of folks who use memberships, like for purchasing clubs, like, you know, I want to sell this to everybody, but members get it cheaper or, you know, I want to hide certain things for members only. Right. And sometimes even, you know, course management sites will still do the same thing. But we found this group of users for memberships who were saying, this is great, but what I need is that I don't have single people that buy my course. I have companies or universities or schools or organizations or families, right? And so what I need is the ability for one person to, to buy it, but then add other people or manage them or invite them because like, I want these other people to take the course. And so a lot of our early interviews when we were um, kind of 
deciding what we wanted team, the teams add-on to be were with LMS sites and using a variety of different you know, LMS plugins, some of whom were using like the Thrill LMS, a fair number of them. So um, we kind of said, okay, let's, let's think about this in terms of the memberships model, which is about protection. And the Teams add-on kind of extends that to say, okay, now let's give protection to a group of people. And we'll call it a team. And so um, what we find with LMS sites is that if they use an LMS plugin with memberships and with Teams, now one person can buy access to a course and they can choose to add themselves to take that course or not, or they can invite other people. So it lets you decouple who pays for it versus who's in the course. And then when they invite people, each person's membership access is like based on when they were invited so that it gives them the full access to the course. Because we also found that some folks, um, you would have a team uh, group where like you don't want the start date per se to be like when the person bought the team, right? You want the start date to be when people start taking the course, when people sign up. And so we kind of really had that LMS um, use case and, jo- and sort of job in mind when we built teams as a result. That is awesome. Uh, that's super cool. I'll be sharing that in my Facebook group right after I hang up on this call because people are people uh it's good to know more about how it works and and especially that's super cool at least to this audience about how you it was kind of built with lms kind of people in mind so that's that's really cool yeah Um, i mean there's there's definitely a lot more that we can do with it yet that we still haven't right it's it's even though it's a bit of like it's been around for a while it's a pretty substantial product right so there's more that we want to do in terms of lms integration like you know showing an owner course status for example like did these people you know how many lessons have they completed but um at least in terms of inviting people and protecting stuff for the, for the group of people to manage their course. We've gone pretty far down that route already. That's cool. Well, I was going to save a question for my free consulting session at the end of the call <laughs> till later, but uh, because uh, the, you, the education entrepreneur can learn from software entrepreneur, since we're here, I wanted to go ahead and surface this one, which is you talked about um, deciding which product to build. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to unpack how you from there do more like what is your what do you see as validation that like a course creator could learn from a software entrepreneur? And then after validation, you know, version one of a product is, you know, products in software, just like courses and memberships can evolve and get better and better over time. So how do you approach um, validation and then iteration because everybody's got capacity and constraints, time, money, whatever, regardless of whether you're building software or education products. Uh, what's your process for validation and iterating? Yeah, and there's a there's <laughs> as many schools of thought out there as you could probably imagine yeah. about this concept. For us, um, there's a few things that we've done in the past, right? One that we did really early on, which I think a lot of software companies do, is they think about like a freemium model, which I think is pretty common with courses, right? You'll start yeah. like a free newsletter or you'll give away some content for free and then build like a premium offering sort of behind that. Um, and I think that that if you're a course creator, you know, listening to this in the audience, you may have even, you've probably tried that or thought about trying that model, right? Um, I think it's a good model and it can be successful. The only thing I'd caution with that model for validating an idea is that um, it it doesn't cover the most important barrier, which is are people willing to give me money for this, right? And sometimes you get lucky and and they will, but sometimes you've solved the problem that is, um, you know, vitamins and not aspirin, right? And so people aren't really like, it's, it's nice for them to have and they're interested in it if it's free, but as soon as they have to pay something for it, now it's really not as important to them. So if you're, if you thought about that model, it's not a bad one and you can stick with it. But what I would say is important, and this is true of software and courses, 
is to make sure that you've really understood the kind of job story that you're solving. And so we use a framework for our product management called Jobs to be Done, which is just kind of a line of questioning and a way of thinking about things, which is you frame all your problems as like, when I do this, I want this to happen so I can achieve some outcome, right? And so that context of when this happens is really important and the context of the outcome I wanna achieve is important. And so if you are giving something away for free, it could meet that outcome, um, but maybe you want to say, okay, am I meeting the whole thing here in one way? My premium offering should be something that solves that in a more robust way or a more seamless way. And then from there, make sure that people are willing to pay for it. So if you can't necessarily upsell any of your free users immediately, even without this thing being built yet, if you say I'm pre-ordering for this course now and you can pay whatever, you know, $50, $100 right now to reserve your spot in it and you get no sales, we need to rethink which problem you're solving, right? Maybe you're solving one that is vitamins. Um, so if you're just starting and you haven't done anything yet and you're kind of getting into this, I would say jump to that separate away before you try to do something freemium, right? That, that's awesome. Before we keep going, I just want to give a little piece of Lifter LMS history. Lifter released over five years ago on October 14th, 2015, and it started as a paid plugin. It was um, $149. It's the core plugin itself is we have a freemium model, but we did, it was important at the very beginning. I wanted to validate, validate it on the initial launch that people were willing to pay. And over time we could add, we were able to add enough value through various add-ons that we could make the decision to flip the model. But we did it. I think, I mean, I'm glad we did it that way. I wasn't really right. that smart. I just kind of got lucky. I, I heard on something that it was supposed to do it that way or something. And uh, So what made you all change, change the model then? Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. Like, I've always heard, like, there's a saying, information wants to be free. Um, uh, people love, fr I mean, just people love free. And also, um, it was important to me as a player in the WordPress community to... I to kind of give back and to contribute in a way. So like um, <clears throat> by putting this LMS system for free, like the core for free, just like WooCommerce. I was really inspired by WooCommerce really. Mm -hmm. It's like, they can do it. We, we can do it. We're not as big. We're like this little niche. But, um, and then, you know, and then it, it also just helped tap into the WordPress innovation where other companies, you know, integrate, build add-ons or whatever. And it, it literally only took one month. Like we went paid to free and then one month our um, revenues were right back where they were, were with a free and, and then it just started climbing or whatever. Cause so it was the right call, but maybe I just got lucky twice. Uh, <laughs> so. No, it can be, it can be awesome for, for growth, right? Yeah. If you already know that there's something there that people are going to pay for. I think that's the really interesting thing from, from that lesson in particular right? Which is that you validated really early that people would pay for it. And so at that point, it sounds like you had a really good concept of like what people would pay for and what would be good to give away for free. Yeah. And I think that that's something that with the freemium model can be hard for people. The first, especially your first go around, if this is your first business, or your first time doing this is understanding like where that line is. And so yeah. I think that if, if I'm going to, if I were choosing, and this is just, again, opinion, not yeah. like, not like fact or something that I think everybody <laughs> should do. I would choose to do it more similar to the way that you did, which is to try to find something people are going to pay for first. And so even if you haven't built it yet, um, you could take pre-orders. You could put up a landing page and do some like Google ads or Facebook ads to see if people will sign up for the pre-order and give you some, you know, um, payment information. 
right? Because then you're validating that idea that yes, people will give me a credit card number or a PayPal account because if they're not willing to cross that hurdle, then maybe you need to think about your positioning or the customer you're targeting or the product itself and the problem you're solving. Yeah, that's awesome. And just on our story, like we validated with our first launch, it was a launch. So we opened the cart, we closed the cart a week later, 42 customers. And then for us, the way we did our initial iteration was um, we were very close with it, these early adopters to like see what they want, where's the friction, you know, and this is, then we opened it up forever, but we took a pause. This is that move slow to move fast later and just worked with our early adopters to make sure we were hitting the mark. How do you iterate mm, after yeah. you validate? And we do something pretty similar. So with, you know, when you find early adopters that are, that are able to clearly articulate the problem that they that's, want. That's, hard, that's harder said than done because not everybody yeah. knows how to communicate. Like, well, exactly. I don't know. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? So what we find is that sometimes people know they have a problem, but they don't know why they have a problem or where they have a problem. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that it, even if it's hard to, to articulate, we could probably think of someone in mind when I say that, right, that you've talked to in terms of uh, one of your potential customers who knows like, yeah, I could probably use this, but they're not really sure why. And that, a lot of that is because that they haven't necessarily delved into the problem that they're trying to solve deep enough themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I look for in a good early adopter to work with when you're trying to iterate is I try to find someone who says, no, this is exactly why I have this problem. And this is what I want to achieve from it. And like, here's why I can't achieve it right now or why it's such a pain to achieve it right now. And so those people are gold and they're, they're the ones that you really want to focus on early, not the ones who are maybe a little bit unclear about the problem, but try to find those people who are, who really deeply understand their problem and the pain points they have, and they can communicate those to you in a way that you understand. Cause if they can tell you, then that usually means that they deeply understand the problem, right? Just like any complex concept, you know, a good teacher is someone who can take that complex concept and make it understandable for other people. And so those are the kind of people that you want as your early adopters. And so we'll focus on that group of people. And then we work really closely with them of like, okay, well, what's this workflow that you have? And we'll build for a small group. We'll build for a group of 10 people or 30 people um, and not necessarily a market at large, because we know that if those 30 people, those 15 people, whoever it is, can tell us about this problem, then other people are going to have this problem or we're going to build from there. And then a lot of the time we'll give those people like a, you know, six months free or, or something or a year free. Um, to keep them motivated and working with us and saying like, Hey, we're building this for you. And like, we're going to sell it, but you know, this is why we want your input because we're building, like we're doing this together. And then when you involve them in the process, they often also become great promoters for you when you first launch, which is also a really important thing too. But they tell other people who are in similar positions, they tell their entrepreneur groups, they tell their Facebook groups. Other people like them, which right. is who your target market is. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we focus on, from from idea to launch, I guess, is what I would probably call that phase, right? Yeah. We'll focus on just a really small group of people and try to get as granular with a specific problem as we can. And so a lot of the plugins we launched, um, sometimes we launched too late. And a lot of that, uh, I think I would, I would put squarely on my plate as my fault, right? Because what do you, you mean try to too build late? I think because you try to build something that's like feature rich or that is um, addressing multiple problems or maybe addressing a problem um, more robustly than it needs to, to get it out there. Right. And so I think that focusing on a small group of people and just picking one of their problems, um, has helped us decide when to launch something and when to start charging money for it easier. Yeah. That's super cool. That's super cool. Um, there's a lot I want to go to from there. Well, let me just say like, I see some course creators 
typically they go to if they're going sometimes they do both but usually they choose they get a product they they validate it or they get lucky and then they kind of improve it a little bit and then what they there's a fork in the road and they either keep improving it or they switch to the portfolio approach and they launch a new course and then they start getting into the membership site thing um what's your advice like if we're let's say we're gonna we're like gonna be one course like there's course creators out there i'm just thinking the first thing that comes to mind is the internet marketer jeff walker he has something called product launch formula it launches every year twice a year i think at like clockwork and i think he continually works on it and improves it he just iterates on it um, what advice, if somebody's going to be like really commit and go like one product, one course, what are some ways to think about iteration to continuously mm. improve beyond so, the early stages of a product? Yeah. And um, I think this is really, really applicable to software too, right? Like how do you sort of love one product and, and kind of keep building it, right? Yeah. Um, what we've found is that when you focus on like specific jobs and problems, the improvement you can have is, is infinite essentially. And so, um, a good you can always do better. Like, yeah, well that, and, and kind of what I mean is usually by solving one problem, what you end up doing is you unlock markets that you didn't realize existed and then you have more problems to solve. So I can give you a pretty good example of this, which is that we built a plugin that lets you, you know, export orders and customers from WooCommerce. Right. And so this, this export suite tool, um, when we first started out was really simple. It would, it would generate an export file and it didn't even do it in the background. So it would like time out if your site, you know, had, had tens of thousands of things. Right. You know, but it solved the need that most people had. And then we, built it and we improved the performance. We did a lot of things, but what we found was that we had one, um, one problem tied to something I mentioned earlier about like fulfillment services, right? Which was that people wanted to automatically export a file and we couldn't build integrations with every fulfillment service out there. So we realized like, while we have a couple of big fulfillment integrations, what we should do here is let you automatically export a file and send it somewhere so that you don't have to do that transfer, right? So you yeah. can email it, you could send a webhook, you can transfer it via FTP, right? Like you should be able to do this. So when we built that feature, which we said, cool, now, you know, besides just automatically exporting on a schedule, now you can send that file somewhere. Um, we found that there was people who never even considered our plugin before, that now it was an option for them. So now we found out that there were other jobs for us to solve, which was, this is great, but now I need to be able to do that with multiple sources because I have two distribution centers or really I'm actually using this to send files to vendors so that they have CSV files of their orders, right? So now I need to be able to set up multiple automated exports or send these to multiple destinations. And so even if you solve one problem really well, if you continue to focus on the people that are using that problem, like there's going to be other problems for you to solve. And the trick is really just kind of staying true to like understanding um, your customers and who you're building for so that you avoid kind of like bloat and you stay like really problem focused. This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately and it'd be cool to have a conversation around, which is um, I think, I think I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that the um, I think it was Seth Godin was talking about your minimum viable audience, like get super tight. Like you're talking about like people, your early adopters, good communicators that can help you really figure out the problem. But then, um, you know, as you get more advanced or your company survives, you start having these conversations around segmentation and you have these different, like you were just saying vendors, um, you know, the people who weren't even in market, 
you start noticing these people using your product that aren't who you're directly marketing to. Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you, what are your thoughts on segmentation? Now I know that's a giant question, like, but (laughs) you know, if you go to, especially for someone who works for an email marketing app, (laughs) (laughs) if you go to a software company site, I mean, this is something you can learn for as a course creator is there's going to be this section on the homepage or somewhere where it's, for you know this type of person this type of person and this type of person like three segments what's it i mean maybe that's a getting started thing and and what just educate the the good people on segmentation (laughs) and some things you've learned about it yeah so when when we look at segmentation i i don't know if i feel like it's a necessarily like an early stage problem i think it's a later stage problem because ideally you want to get it as as tight as you can with the initial product on like what we call one segment, right? So like, or what, you know, Seth Godin calls like minimum, you know, viable audience or whatnot, right? Yeah. As you want to focus on like a single person or use case or problem. But I think that naturally, like every product um, can be expanded and it's your choice as, as the person who's building it, whether you want to do that or not, right? If you want to grow it though, you're probably going to have to serve more than one problem or more than one market as you grow. I think that's when segmentation becomes interesting. So I look at it as like you develop segments, you don't start with segmentation. Um, there's, you know, the, there's a lot written about this from a marketing perspective, um, you know, with, with land and expand being a strategy you can follow, right? Serve one segment in one um, demographic and then expand your demographic or expand your segments, right? Um, so when we do this, once you expand to see to your point, oh, maybe there's some people using this product that weren't in my initial target or that initial audience, right? Um, then I think you have to talk to those people. And so what we found um, when we were building that particular product that I mentioned was these people who would say like, hey, this is pretty cool that you added this feature, but like I need to actually do this more than one time, right? We tried to find out as much as we could about them. And so our, our support team, for example, when they when they log that information for us, would say, hey, will you talk to someone you know, on our, on our team, or would you be willing to chat with us so that we can understand this problem a little bit better? And we try to say like, okay, well, who are you? What do you do? Right. Let's like reclassify you. So we kind of build those segments as we go. And we found that like, okay, oh, you're a drop shipper. Well, we haven't talked to a lot of drop shippers. Explain to me the drop shipping problems. And then you almost sort of repeat the process that you went through from the very beginning, which is now treat this as a new problem and a new customer you're serving and see if it fits your product or not. This is really awesome. I just want to take a moment to pause and talk about the um, six key areas of any business, but it's especially true in software. But if you, what I encourage you who's listening right now is to think about this for your online course business. Cause we talk a lot about how you have to wear multiple hats. Yep. <laughs> so the five hats for course creators, which is different than the six, but real quick is you have to be a, um, an expert, a teacher, a community builder, a technologist, and an entrepreneur. Now, inside that entrepreneur hat, you have to build a company that has six functions. And at first, you're going to be doing all of this if you're a one-person operation, which is, for a software company, it is um, sales, marketing, product, engineering, customer success, and operations and admin. So there are six key functions there. What we're having a conversation around today mostly is around product. So mm-hmm. for you, that's a course or your membership site. And Becca has a brilliant product mind. 
And uh, so I really encourage you and you to like learn. We're we're having we're talking about product, and she's good at these other hats too. I know, but um, uh, I heard once that um, this is from one of my business coaches. His name's Dan Martell. That I heard that um, uh, product managers in Silicon Valley, the really good ones, sometimes make a lot more than the CEO. And the reason is, is this is a highly specialized skill set that. Um, some people just naturally evolve into, and I don't even, I mean, I know there's product, product manager training stuff out there and books and whatnot, but, um, it's a really interesting skill. And if you're a course creator and a membership site person, you are, you're creating a product and, um, there's just a lot we can learn from software. So I just wanted to talk about that and kind of couch that into this conversation. Yeah. Well, I think that one thing that part of the reason that that's true, right, that product management is so vital is because to your previous set of requirements, right, it's that to do good product management, you have to be aware of community building and teaching and, and being a technologist, right, and all these other components. And so what I find is that if you, if you understand good, like, customer development, which is a big part of product management, and how a product fits into a larger ecosystem and marketplace, which is also, you know, kind of an advanced part of good product management, right? Then you're going to understand how do I build a community? How do I sell this product, right? And so I think that that I kind of, part of the reason that product management doesn't necessarily have a discipline in like universities or stuff, but why it is so vital to a lot of companies is because it sort of encompasses a lot of that in entrepreneurship of like, how do I build something that people want, right? And the, and the sort of nuts and bolts of, of you know, there's there's these, Concepts of like, you know, a lot of companies have like a visionary and an implementer, right? Yeah. And that kind of concept. Um, and I think that that good product management is is being able to do both. Is saying like, here's what I think people want to solve, but like, here's like, let me go figure out the path now to get to that. And I think that's why it's valuable for course creators because it's it's saying, hey, what do people want to learn from you? And are they going to pay to learn that? And what are the specifics of what they want to learn? And how can we build a community around that that not only teaches that, you know, to them, but keeps them coming back and maybe generates like recurring revenue for you as a course creator. So people aren't paying you once and then going away. How do you keep them engaged in the course? So they tell other people how valuable the course was, right? It's all tied up and it is really similar to the way we do things in software. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And do you have any, um, maybe top two or three, uh, if somebody wants to kind of get a little better at product management thinking or whatever, um, is there any kind of person or book they should, that you recommend? Oh man, there's so many. So <laughs> well, you can rattle them off. You can do yeah. them if you want. I would say that that actually, if you're not a product manager, I think software is a great place to learn because product management is so much a discipline in software in comparison to other industries. So software product management is a good place to learn from. I would say that uh, if I were going to start somewhere, I would look at Ken Norton's list of books for for product managers is is probably a really good place to start. Um, so things like uh, I think it's Creativity Inc. Is, is one of his top recommendations. And there's a lot about basic product management that he recommends there. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's other online communities and stuff as well. You know, I just like books. So I think that's one that I kind of do as a go-to. Awesome. Well, uh, let's make the turn over to Jilt. And, but I guess before we go there, like when you look at WooCommerce, e-commerce, like where, where's there a big gap like in the market? Like, is sometimes we think that like just maybe throw out an example sometimes it seems like oh it's already been done before but there's always room for improvement like if you're looking at the woocommerce or e-commerce area today what's an example like pain point that's out there right i think jilt jilt was was our example of that right okay. and so 
for us, when you go back to talking about course creators and, and one of the things that you mentioned uh, was community building, right? That's all about communication. And so that was kind of one of the seeds of, of Jilt for us was we had built a lot of these products like memberships is, is, is kind of one that was a big contributor to this. When we found that people had difficulty communicating with their customers and building a community and they were trying to solve it a lot of ways, like things like with BB press and buddy press and other like email platforms. And what we found was that, um, people assume that email is like done because MailChimp existed, right? And MailChimp is a fantastic company and they're enormous and they're, uh, you know, one of the most successful bootstrap companies that, that, you know, we can use as, as a shiny example of that. But we found that they didn't really actually serve this e-commerce problem really specifically. And so um, it felt a little bit crazy. And I remember thinking that people who were launching small e-commerce apps at that time probably were a little bit crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but we found that, yeah, something exists for this, but it doesn't do it as well as people want because it doesn't have the e-commerce data, like their orders and their contact information and, and details about their memberships, for example, right? And things they purchased. And MailChimp's gotten a little bit better, you know, as time has gone on with that. But that was why we started Jilt was because like these people need to build community and they need to keep these people engaged with their site and coming back to their site. And they have difficulty doing that with tools that exist now. So can we maybe have email marketing that is tailored to small e-commerce businesses? And, but gives you tools that, you know, large and, and, and enterprise level businesses use, but can we bring them to these people in a way that makes sense? And that kind of really aligned with our core mission as a company. And, um, and so Jilt sort of came out of that as, as a result of that similar concept. Yeah, there's something that exists, but this problem isn't really being solved in a really robust way. Can we do it? What's your core mission as a company? To level the playing field for e-commerce growth. So to take, you know, enterprise level tools and, and make them available for small businesses. Wow, that's awesome. So, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. And this kind of goes back to the minimum viable audience. MailChimp is for small business, I guess. or Well, not necessarily. It's just for business. It's just a general CRM, email marketing or what, whatever. But what about uh, the e-commerce or specifically WooCommerce niche. I mean, that's a right. segment and th that segment's yeah. going to have unique problems that the current solution is a little too generalized. So that's, that's a huge takeaway and just goes back to the um, minimum viable audience point. And, and re the reality is e-commerce is not a bad segment because, you know, typically their businesses, they have money. It's, um, you know, and they have, they're willing to pay to solve problems, i.e. aspirin, not vitamins. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. Well, um, so you've got inside Jilt, you've got, and this is over at jilt.com. Go check it out. If you're using WooCommerce, you need to be aware of this. Automation, newsletters, segmentation, analytics, email editing. Um, I was, <clears throat> let me go, where was I? I was on the features page. One of the things I think when you innovate is, um, like I'm an early adopter in WordPress. Like I started using WordPress in 2007 or something like that, but I'm not an early adopter at other things. But because I'm an early adopter in WordPress, I'm willing to string together like a lot of different tools to do stuff. <laughs> but then what, what happens with good innovation is a company like Jilt comes along and, and there's all these like tools and different SaaS apps and everything. And you just like, you know what? Why don't I just consolidate the, the feature set here? And get into it like like for example the dynamic coupons thing that you do mm -hmm. um expansion revenue if i just buy a product if i just buy one course from you what about like uh you know a follow-up email that creates a coupon that like hey 
for the next three days, you can get this one for half off this other one. So you're trying to expand your average order value or something like that. That's a very e-commerce specific problem or opportunity. I don't know. I'm not setting you up with a question, but uh, <laughs> like what, like how do you, just in general, what problems do you solve? Like what are you doing for the WooCommerce store owner with Jilt? Yeah. And so what you see now with Jilt, I think it's it's um, easy to look at it and say like, oh, well, it's not necessarily as much of that early adopter problem, right? That that it's not focusing on a particular thing um, and, and, you know, we're consolidating, right? But that's not where Jilt started. Where Jilt started was a very specific problem, which was solely card abandonment recovery. Nice. And so when we when we looked at, okay, you know, folks are having trouble with uh, email that works well for them. They're having trouble with building you know, community and then they want emails that are on brand and, and um, you know, their platform is solving some of this, right? WooCommerce has some emails built in, a lot of plugins have some emails built in. Um, but this wasn't the problem that was solved really well. And the reason we started with card abandonment was that when we looked at of all the emails a store sends, which one generates the most money, basically, which one can we deliver the highest value with? And that was cart recovery, which is, you know, when someone adds something to your cart, but they, but they don't check out, right? And then you send them reminder emails, um, maybe they're customer service focused, right? Like, hey, um, something uh, go wrong? You know, did you have any questions? Here's our return policy. Here's our shipping policy. Um, you know, please buy this, right? Or let us know why you don't want to and we're happy to help. Um, and then so the dynamic discounts actually came as a result of that, which was, um, you know, a lot of times folks want to offer like a 5% off coupon or free shipping or something in like their third email. And so let's let's build that so they can do it. And then we found that as as Jilt grew and we knew that we wanted to cover other use cases with Jilt, um, we found other ways that that feature was going to be helpful for people. And post-purchase follow-ups like that to increase customer lifetime value are one of the other great examples of like, hey, you've purchased something, but you haven't purchased again in like six months. Let me send you this limited time coupon. Like, hey, if you want to pick up your second course, do it for 50% off right now. And so, um, you know, while something like Jill appears to consolidate a lot of features, and it kind of does now, we still started really niche and we built it in those phases. Like it did cart abandonment first and then it did post-purchase automations and then it did other automations like a win back over time or like asking for product reviews, right? And then we built newsletters. And so we kind of iterated on it over time in like the same way that we're kind of describing. That is awesome. Um, and I think course creators can learn from that. We, in, that, in, in this industry, we call it the expert's curse. So the big problem is, I'm really experienced in chemistry as an example, which I'm not, but I'm, you just, you're here, so I'm using that one. If I'm going to teach chemistry courses online, um, I could try to teach everything under the sun, but there's probably like a really specific one um, that I should start with. Because a lot of people get stuck. They're like, I got to do it all. But what you said is, I'm going to go to the high value problem where I can add the most value quickly. And, uh, and earn the customer trust and then grow with them over time. That's a, that's a beautiful approach. Yeah, absolutely. So if you took chemistry as an example, right? If I were building course sites for chemistry, like what would I do, right? Well, I'd start with what do people probably struggle most with and what are most people doing? And um, I could think, okay, well, it might be people who are looking for a crash course for a job, or it might be high school students looking to pass, you know, general chemistry, or it might be college freshmen who are taking, you know, Chem 101, right? And like, so which one of these do I want to solve? Um, college students are probably uh, a good place because they're already buying textbooks, right? So maybe if you're replacing a textbook uh, and a tutor, right, maybe you could do that. So let's start with general chemistry because that's where everybody starts, right? And so let me solve general chemistry really um, kind of like similar to what Khan Academy did, right? Which was like, you know, 
we're going to make this really understandable and easy for you. And then once I've done that, now maybe I can think about, I might have more expensive courses then for organic chemistry because uh, I know one person in my life that liked organic chemistry, right? <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's an absolute bear of a class, right? So maybe I'm going to charge more for this course. And then maybe I'm going to look at like physical chemistry or inorganic chemistry or analytical chemistry. And I can add other courses in here that are all in the same vein and, and targeted to that same customer, which is a college student. Um, but now I'm targeting a chem major instead of maybe any student. So maybe these courses are focused more in depth instead of just helping you pass the course. And so if, if you're going to approach something like that, I think that that kind of niche down really far with your first customer gets to that minimum viable audience of, I'm going to target college freshmen who are just trying to pass chemistry, right? But then as you grow, and that's kind of what I was getting at earlier with like, you're going to solve different problems, you'd probably end up getting a lot of chem majors taking that course who now want more advanced information. So now maybe I should make organic chemistry understandable for them. And that could be part of the same course, or it could be another course, but at least that's kind of like my land and expand strategy. Wow, I love that. I appreciate that that example. We're just about up on up on time, and to just give one more, um, just quick value to the people. You've done something really well, which I think people can learn from. Uh, like you have a portfolio approach. You've got a lot of products. Mm -hmm. um, just real quick, like what are the three biggest things that contributed to your ability to scale in that way? Because if we're if we're a course creator and we're wearing five hats and we got this big dream and we want to build this portfolio. What's, what are some of the key things that allowed you to survive and thrive as a portfolio, a company with a suite of products? Yeah. So um, it's, it's approach I'd, I'd, I'd caution people to think about carefully, right? Because it's, it's hard to do a portfolio of things versus one product, right? And one brand and, and one thing that you're doing, right? Focus is, is one of your most valuable commodities as you start out with something, right? So uh, if you want to do that, then make sure that there's some similarity between your products that helps sort of um, become a force multiplier across those products, or you need to start different companies with different teams and different resources devoted to them. So in our case, we started as a portfolio company. Like when our, our co-founders kind of made the company, there were already like seven products between them. It was, it was a really small products and it was successful for us because we did a few things. One was that a lot of our pro products target similar customer personas, which helps us a lot. And actually, that's where we get that network effect to benefit ourselves from, where when we solve one problem with one product, sometimes it gives us insights into other products and, and pulls double duty for us. So make sure that that your customers are similar. So you're not trying to target multiple different groups. Um, and in our case, we also have 50 different plugins, but they use the same engineering backbone. And we kind of abstracted uh, a lot of what we build into like a framework pretty early on so that it makes our maintenance burden way easier. So if you were going to start courses, you know, the analog might be my chemistry courses, right? That the backbone is going to be that I'm going to probably have um, similar structure between those courses, similar concepts. Some of the concepts can be repurposed between courses, right? And, and maybe even reused. Um, but if I was going to then start like a course on mathematics, um, I'm going to have to be careful about the way I do that, right? Because now it's going to be something entirely different and it's going to be harder for me to maintain and for me to keep updated. So I'm going to need to put some dedicated resources behind that. Um, and so we've done that, right? We did that with Jill. It is a different product in comparison and a different technology stack than our WooCommerce plugins. Uh, but we then, you know, made sure that we, uh, we staffed it appropriately. So even though it's still similar personas, in this case, you know, still maybe college students, right? But it is a little different. Maybe it's math majors instead. <laughs> and so yeah. you have to be aware of that when you build a portfolio business. So it can be great and it can give you insights that single product companies maybe don't have. So I'm not saying do one or the other, but just kind of go into it with both eyes open that you need to make sure that there's 
similarities and that you try to, if you build a portfolio to make sure that um, the portfolio itself is an, is an advantage and not just more products, more revenue. Becca Rice, I could have talked to you for two more hours, but <laughs> she's at skyverge.com. Go check that out. And also jilt.com. If you're using WooCommerce and you haven't checked out these two sites, go do that now. There'll be a link to those down below. Becca, thanks so much for coming on the show and having this chat today. I really appreciate it. And you've added a ton of value to the community here. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much, Chris. It was great to see you again. And that's a wrap for this episode of LMS Cast. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I hope you enjoyed the show. This show was brought to you by Lifter LMS, the number one tool for creating, selling, and protecting engaging online courses to help you get more revenue, freedom, and impact in your life. Head on over to lifterlms.com and get the best gear for your course creator journey. Let's build the most engaging results getting courses on the internet.